0: Number two, the exercises and discoveries God has made of His wonderful love to sinful men by Jesus Christ in the work of redemption are among the chief manifestations of His glorious moral perfections to both angels and men, and so is one main objective ground of the love of both to God in a good conscience with what was said before. Number three, God's love to a particular elect person discovered by his conversion is a great manifestation of God's moral perfection and glory to him and thus is a proper occasion of exciting holy gratitude agreeable to what was said before and that the saints in these respects love God because he first loved them fully answers the design of the apostles argument in that place so that no good argument can be drawn from hence "...against a spiritual and gracious love in the saints arising primarily from the excellency of divine things as they are in themselves, and not from any conceived relation they bear to their interest. And as it is with the love of the saints, so it is with their joy and spiritual delight. The first foundation of it is not any consideration of their interest in divine things." But it primarily consists in the sweet entertainment their minds have in the contemplation of the divine and holy beauty of these things as they are in themselves. And this is indeed the very main difference between the joy of the hypocrite and the joy of the true saint. The former rejoices in himself. Self is the first foundation of his joy. The latter rejoices in God. The hypocrite has his mind pleased and delighted in the first place with his own privilege and happiness, to which he supposes he hath attained or shall attain. True saints have their minds in the first place inexpressibly pleased and delighted with the sweet ideas of the glorious and amiable nature of the things of God. This is the spring of all their delights, and the cream of all their pleasures. It is the joy of their joy." The sweet and ravishing entertainment they have in viewing the beautiful and delightful nature of divine things is a foundation of the joy they have afterward in the consideration of their being theirs. But the dependence of the affections of hypocrites is in a contrary order. They first rejoice and are elevated that they are favorites of God, and then on that ground he seems in a sort lovely to them. The affections of hypocrites are very often after this manner. They are first much affected with some impression on their imagination or some impulse which they take to be an immediate suggestion or testimony from God of His love and their happiness. They fancy a high privilege in some respect either with or without a text of Scripture. They are mightily taken with this as a great discovery, and hence arise high affections." When their affections are raised, they view those high affections and call them great and wonderful experiences, and they have a notion that God is greatly pleased with those affections. This affects them still more, and so they are affected with their affections. Thus their affections rise higher and higher until they sometimes are perfectly swallowed up. Also self-conceit, and a fierce zeal arises, and all is built like a castle in the air, on nothing but imagination, self-love, and pride. And as the thoughts of such persons, so is their talk. For out of the abundance of their heart their mouth speaketh. As in their high affections they keep their eye upon the beauty of their experiences, and greatness of their attainments, so they are great talkers about themselves." The true saint, when under great spiritual affections, from the fullness of his heart, is ready to speak much of God, his glorious perfections and works, the beauty and amiableness of Christ, and the glorious things of the gospel. But hypocrites in their high affections talk more of the discovery than of the thing discovered. They are full of talk about the wonderful discoveries they have had, how sure they are of the love of God to them, how safe their condition is, how they know they shall go to heaven, and so on. As the love and joy of hypocrites are all from the source of self-love, so it is with their other affections, their sorrow for sin, their humiliation and submission, their religious desires and zeal. Everything is, as it were, paid for beforehand, and God's highly gratifying their self-love, by making so much of them, and exalting them so highly as things are in their imagination— it is easy for nature, corrupt as it is, under a notion of being already some of the highest favorites of heaven, and having a God who so protects and favors them in their sins, to love this imaginary God that suits them so well, and equally easy to, and to be fierce him. and zealous for him. The high affections of many are all built on the supposition of their being eminent saints. If that opinion which they have of themselves were taken away, if they thought they were some of the lower form of saints, though they should yet suppose themselves to be real saints, their high affections would fall to the ground. If only they saw a little of the sinfulness and vileness of their own hearts, and their deformity in the midst of their best duties and their best affections, it would destroy their affections because they are built upon self. Self-knowledge would destroy them, but as to truly gracious affections they have their foundation in God and Jesus Christ, and therefore a discovery of themselves, of their own deformity, and the meanness of their experiences, though it will purify their affections, yet it will not destroy them, but in some respects sweeten and heighten them. Section 4. Gracious affections arise from the mind being enlightened rightly and spiritually to apprehend divine things. Holy affections are not heat without light, but evermore arise from some information of the understanding, some spiritual instruction that the mind receives, some light or actual knowledge. The child of God is graciously affected because he sees and understands something more of divine things than he did before, more of God or Christ, and of the glorious things exhibited in the gospel. He has a clearer and better view than he had before when he was not affected. Either he receives some new understanding of divine things, or has his former knowledge renewed after the view was decayed, 1 John 4, 7. Everyone that loveth knoweth God. Philippians one nine, I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Romans ten two, they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Colossians three ten, the new man which is renewed in knowledge. Psalm forty three three and four, O send thou thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me unto thy holy hill. John 6.45, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that has heard and learned of the Father cometh unto me. Knowledge is the key that first opens a hard heart, enlarges the affections, and opens a way for men into the kingdom of heaven. Luke 11.52, You have taken away the key of knowledge. Now, there are many affections which do not arise from any light in the understanding, which is a sure evidence that these affections are not spiritual. Let them be ever so high. Thomas Shepard writes, quote, Many that have had mighty strong affections at first conversion, afterwards become dry and wither, and consume and pine and die away. And now their hypocrisy is manifest, if not to all the world by open profaneness, yet to the discerning eye of living Christians, by a formal, barren, unsavoury, unfruitful heart and course, because they never had light to conviction enough as yet. It is strange to see some people carried with mighty affection against sin and hell and after Christ. And what is the hell you fear? A dreadful place? What is Christ? They scarce know so much as devils do, but that is all. Oh, trust him not many have, and these will fall away to some lust or opinion or pride or world and the reason is they never had light enough john five thirty five John was a burning and shining light, and they did joy in him for a season. Yet glorious as it was, they saw not Christ by it, especially not with divine light. It is rare to see Christians full both of light and affection, and therefore consider of this. Many a man has been well brought up, and is of a sweet, loving nature, mild and gentle and harmless, likes and loves the best things, and his meaning and mind and heart is good, and has more in heart than in show and so hopes all shall go well with him. I say there may lie greatest hypocrisy under greatest affections, especially if they lack light. You shall be hardened in your hypocrisy by them. I never liked violent affections and pangs, but only such as were dropped in by light, because those come from an external principle and last not, but these last." Men are not affrighted by the light of the sun, though clearer than the lightning. Shepherd's parable. Indeed, they have some new apprehensions which they had not before, such as the nature of man that it is impossible his mind should be affected unless it be by something that he apprehends or that his mind conceives. But in many persons, those apprehensions or conceptions wherewith they are affected have nothing of the nature of knowledge or instruction in them. For instance, when a person is affected with a lively idea, suddenly excited in his mind, a some shape, or beautiful pleasant form of countenance, a shining light, or other glorious outward appearance, here is something conceived by the mind but nothing of the nature of instruction. Persons become never the wiser by such things, more knowing about God, a mediator between God and man, the way of salvation by Christ, or anything contained in the doctrines of the gospel. Persons by these external ideas have no further acquaintance with God as to any of the attributes or perfections of His nature, nor have they any further understanding of His word, His ways, or works. Truly spiritual and gracious affections are not raised after this manner. They arise from the enlightening of the understanding, to understand the things taught of God and Christ in a new manner. There is a new understanding of the excellent nature of God and His wonderful perfections, some new view of Christ and His spiritual excellencies and fullness or things are open to him in a new manner whereby he now understands those divine and spiritual doctrines which were once foolishness to him. Such enlightenings of the understanding as these are entirely different in their nature from strong ideas of shapes and colors, outward brightness and glory, or sound and voices." That all gracious affections arise from some instruction or enlightening of the understanding is therefore a further proof that affections which arise from such an impression on the imagination are not gracious... Hence so also it appears that affections arising from text of Scripture come into the mind are vain, when no instruction received in the understanding from those texts or anything taught in those texts is a ground of the affection, but the manner of their coming to the mind.
1: When, when Christ, Christ
0: makes a Scripture a means of the hearts burning with gracious affection, it is by opening the Scriptures to their understandings. Luke twenty four thirty two. Did not our heart burn within us while well, he talked with us by the way? And while he opened to us the scriptures. It appears also that the affection which is occasioned by the coming of a text of scripture must be vain when the affection is founded on something that is supposed to be taught by it, which really is not contained in it, nor any other scripture because such supposed instruction is not real instruction, but a mistake and misapprehension of the mind. As for instance, when persons suppose that they are expressly taught by some scripture coming to their minds, that they in particular are beloved of God, or that their sins are forgiven, that God is their Father and the like. This is a mistake or misapprehension, for the scripture nowhere reveals the individual persons who are beloved, expressly, but only by consequence, by revealing the qualifications of persons that are beloved of God, and therefore this matter is not to be learned from Scripture any other way than by consequence, and from these qualifications, for things are not to be learned from the Scripture any other way than they are taught in the Scripture. Affections really arise from ignorance, rather than instruction, in these instances which have been mentioned, as likewise in some others that might be mentioned. As some, when they find themselves free of speech and prayer, call it God's being with them. This affects them more, and so their affections are set a-going and increased, when they look not into the cause of this freedom of speech, which may arise many other ways besides God's spiritual presence." So some are much affected with some apt thoughts that come into their minds about the Scripture, and call it the Spirit of God teaching them. So they ascribe many of the workings of their own minds, which they have a high opinion of, and are pleased and taken with, to the special immediate influences of God's Spirit, and so are mightily affected with their privilege and there are some instances of persons in whom it seems manifested that the first ground of their affection is some bodily sensation. The animal spirits, by some cause, and probably sometimes by the devil, are suddenly and unaccountably put into a very agreeable motion, causing persons to feel pleasantly in their bodies. The animal spirits are put into such a motion as is wont to be connected with the exhilaration of the mind. In the soul, by the laws of the union of soul and body, hence feels pleasure. The motion of the animal spirits does not first arise from any affection or apprehension of the mind whatsoever, but the very first thing that is felt is an exhilaration of the animal spirits, and a pleasant external sensation, it may be, in their breaths. Hence, Through ignorance a person being surprised begins to think surely this is the Holy Ghost coming into him, and then the mind begins to be affected and raised. There is first great joy, and then many other affections in a very tumultuous manner, putting all nature, both body and mind, into a mighty ruffle. For though, as I observed before, it is only the soul that is the seat of the affections, yet this hinders not but that bodily sensations may in this manner be an occasion of affections in the mind. And though men's religious affections truly arise from some instruction or light in the understanding, yet the affection is not gracious unless the light which is the ground of it be spiritual. Affections may be excited by that understanding of things which they obtain merely by human teaching, with the common improvement of the faculties of the mind. Men may be much affected by knowledge of things of religion that they obtain this way, as some philosophers have been mightily affected and almost carried beyond themselves by the discoveries they have made in mathematics and natural philosophy. So men may be much affected from common illuminations of the Spirit of God, in which God assists men's faculties to a greater degree of that kind of understanding of religious matters, which they have in some degree by only the ordinary exercise and improvement of their own faculties. Such illuminations may much affect the mind, as in many whom we read of in Scripture that were once enlightened. But these affections are not spiritual. There is such a thing, if the Scriptures are of any use to teach us anything, as a spiritual, supernatural understanding of divine things that is peculiar to the saints, in which those who are not saints have nothing of. It is this kind of understanding, apprehending, or discerning of divine things that natural men have nothing of, as the Apostle speaks, First Corinthians 2.14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. It is certainly a kind of seeing, or discerning spiritual things peculiar to the saints, which is spoken of in 1 John 3, verse 6. Whosoever sinneth has not seen him, neither known him. In 3 John 11, he that doeth evil hath not seen God. In John 6.40, This is the will of him that sent me, that everyone that seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. In chapter 14.19, The world seeth me no more, but ye see me. In chapter 17.3, This is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Matthew 11.27 No man knoweth the Son, but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. John 17.45 He that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. Psalm 9.10 They that know thy name will put their trust in thee. Philippians 3, eight. I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, in verse 10, that I may know Him. And in innumerable other places there are all over the Bible which show the same. And that there is such a thing as an understanding of divine things, which in its nature and kind is wholly different from all knowledge that natural men have, is evident from this that there is an understanding of divine things which the Scripture calls spiritual understanding, Colossians 1, nine. We do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will, and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. It has been already showed that that which is spiritual in an ordinary use of that word in the New Testament is entirely different in nature and kind from all which natural men are, or can be the subjects of. From hence it may be surely inferred wherein spiritual understanding consists. For if there be in the saints a kind of apprehension or perception, which is in its nature perfectly diverse from all that natural men have, or that it is possible they should have until they have a new nature, it must consist in their having a certain kind of ideas or sensations of mind, which are simply diverse from all that is or can be in the minds of natural men. That is the same thing as to say that it consists in the sensations of a new spiritual sense, which the souls of natural men have not. As is evident by what has been repeatedly observed, spiritual understanding consists primarily in a cordial sense, or a sense of heart of that spiritual beauty. I say a sense of heart, for it is not speculation merely that is concerned in this kind of understanding, nor can there be a clear distinction made between the two faculties of understanding and will as acting distinctly and separately in this manner. When the mind is sensible of the sweet beauty and amiableness of a thing, that implies a sensibleness of sweetness and delight in the presence of the idea of it. And this sensibleness of the amiableness or delightfulness of beauty carries, in the very nature of it, the sense of the heart. There is a distinction to be made between a mere notional understanding, wherein the mind only beholds things in the exercise of a speculative faculty, and the sense of the heart, wherein the mind does not only speculate and behold, but relishes and feels." That sort of knowledge by which a man has a sensible perception of amiableness and loathsomeness or a sweetness and nauseousness is not just the same sort of knowledge with that by which he knows what a triangle is and what a square is. The one is mere speculative knowledge, the other sensible knowledge in which more than the mere intellect is concerned. The heart is a proper subject of it, or the soul as a being that not only beholds, but has inclination, and is pleased or displeased. And yet there is a nature of instruction in it. As he that has perceived the sweet taste of honey knows much more about it than he who has only looked upon and felt it, the apostle seems to make a distinction between mere speculative knowledge of the things of religion and spiritual knowledge. The former he terms a form of knowledge and of the truth, Romans 2.20, which has the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. The latter is often represented by relishing, smelling or tasting second 2 Corinthians 2:14. 2, now thanks be to God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of His knowledge by us in every place. Matthew 16:23. Thou savourest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3 As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby, If so be have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Canticles 1, 3 Because of the savour of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore do the virgins love thee compared with 1 John 2.20, but ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. Spiritual understanding primarily consists in this sense or taste of the moral beauty of divine things, so that no knowledge can be called spiritual any further than it arises from this and has this in it but secondarily it includes all that discerning and knowledge of things of religion which depends upon and flows from such a sense. When the true beauty and amiableness of the holiness or true moral good that is in divine things is discovered to the soul, it, as it were, opens a new world to its view. This shows the glory of all the perfections of God and of everything appertaining to the divine being. For as was observed before, the beauty of all arises from God's moral perfection. This shows the glory of all God's works, both of creation and providence. For it is the special glory of them that God's holiness, righteousness, faithfulness, and goodness are so manifested in them, and without these moral perfections there would be no glory in that power and skill with which they are wrought. The glorifying of God's moral perfections is the special end of all the works of God's hands. By this sense of the moral beauty of divine things is understood the sufficiency of Christ as a mediator. For it is only by the discovery of the beauty of the moral perfection of Christ that the believer is let into the knowledge of the excellency of his person, so as to know anything more of it than the devils do, and it is only by the knowledge of the excellency of Christ's person That any know his sufficiency as a mediator, for the latter depends upon and arises from the former. It is by seeing the excellency of Christ's person that the saints are made sensible of the preciousness of his blood, and its sufficiency to atone for sin. For therein consists the preciousness of Christ's blood, that it is the blood of so excellent and amiable a person, and on this depends the meritoriousness of his obedience and the sufficiency and prevalence of his intercession. By this sight of the moral beauty of divine things is seen the beauty of the way of salvation by Christ. For that consists in the beauty of the moral perfections of God, which wonderfully shines forth in every step of this method of salvation from beginning to end. By this is seen the fitness and suitableness of this way. For this wholly consists in its tendency to deliver us from sin and hell, and to bring us to the happiness which consists in the possession and enjoyment of moral good in a way sweetly agreeing with God's moral perfections and in the way being contrived so as to attain these ends, consists in the excellent wisdom of that way. By this is seen the excellency of the word of God. Take away all the moral beauty and sweetness in the word, and the Bible is left wholly a dead letter, a dry, lifeless, tasteless thing. But this is seen the true foundation of our duty, the worthiness of God to be so esteemed, honored, loved, submitted to, and served, as He requires of us, and the amiableness of the duties themselves that are required of us. And by this is seen the true evil of sin, for he who sees the beauty of holiness must necessarily see the hatefulness of sin its contrary." By this men understand the true glory of heaven, which consists in the beauty and happiness that is in holiness. By this is seen the amiableness and happiness of both saints and angels. He that sees the beauty of holiness, or true moral good, sees the greatest and most important thing in the world, which is the fullness of all things, without which all the world is empty, no better than nothing, yea, worse than nothing." Unless this is seen, nothing is seen that is worth the seeing, for there is no other true excellency or beauty. Unless this be understood, nothing is understood that is worthy of the exercise of the noble faculty of the understanding. This is the beauty of the Godhead, and the divinity of divinity, if I may so speak. The good of the infinite fountain of good, without which God himself, if that were possible, would be an infinite evil, without which we ourselves had better never have been, and without which there had better have been no being. He therefore, in effect, knows nothing that knows not this. His knowledge is but the shadow of knowledge, or the form of knowledge, as the apostle calls it. Well, therefore, may the scriptures represent those who are destitute of that spiritual sense by which is perceived the beauty of holiness as totally blind, deaf, and senseless, yea, dead. And well may regeneration in which this divine sense is given to the soul by its Creator be represented as opening the blind eyes, and raising the dead, and bringing a person into a new world. For if what has been said be considered, it will be manifest, that when a person has the sense and knowledge given him, he will view nothing as he did before, though before he knew all things, after the flesh... Yet henceforth he will know them so no more, and he has become a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new, agreeable to Second Corinthians five sixteen and 17. And besides the things that have been already mentioned, there arises from this sense of spiritual beauty all true experimental knowledge of religion, which is of itself, as it were, a new world of knowledge, He that sees not the beauty of holiness knows not what one of the graces of God's Spirit is, is destitute of any idea or conception of all gracious exercises of the soul, and all holy comforts and delights, and all effects of the saving influences of the Spirit of God on the heart, and so is ignorant of the greatest works of God, the most important and glorious effects of His power upon the creature, and also is wholly ignorant of the saints as saints. He knows not what they are, and in effect is ignorant of the whole spiritual world. Things being thus, it plainly appears that God's implanting of that spiritual supernatural sense which has been spoken of makes a great change in a man. And were it not for the very imperfect degree in which this sense is commonly given at first, or the small degree of this glorious light that first dawns upon the soul, the change made by the spiritual opening of the eyes and conversion would be much greater and more remarkable every way than if a man who had been born blind, and with only the other four senses, should continue so long a time, and then at once should have the sense of seeing imparted to him, in the midst of the clear light of the sun, discovering a world of visible objects." For though sight be more noble than any of the other external senses, yet the spiritual sense is infinitely more noble than that, or any other principle of discerning that a man naturally has, and the object of this sense infinitely greater and more important. The sword of understanding is that knowledge of divine things from whence all truly gracious affections proceed, by which therefore all affections are to be tried those affections that arise wholly from any other kind of knowledge, or result from any other kind of apprehensions of mind, are vain. From what has been said may be learned wherein the most essential difference lies between that light or understanding which is given by the common influences of the Spirit of God on the hearts of natural men, and that saving instruction which is given to the saints. The latter primarily, and most essentially, lies in beholding the holy beauty that is in divine things, which is the only true moral good, and which the soul of fallen man is by nature totally blind to. THE FORMER CONSISTS ONLY IN A FURTHER UNDERSTANDING, THROUGH THE ASSISTANCE OF NATURAL PRINCIPLES, OF THOSE THINGS WHICH MEN MAY KNOW IN SOME MEASURE BY THE ALONE ORDINARY EXERCISE OF THEIR FACULTIES. AND THIS KNOWLEDGE CONSISTS ONLY IN THE KNOWLEDGE OF THOSE THINGS PERTAINING TO RELIGION WHICH ARE NATURAL. THUS, FOR INSTANCE, IN THOSE AWAKENINGS OF THE CONSCIENCE THAT NATURAL MEN ARE OFTEN SUBJECT TO, THE SPIRIT OF GOD GIVES NO KNOWLEDGE OF THE TRUE MORAL BEAUTY WHICH IS IN DIVINE THINGS, but only assist the mind to a clearer idea of the guilt of sin, or its relation to punishment and its connection with the evil of suffering, without any sight of its true moral evil or odiousness as sin, and a clearer idea of the natural perfections of God, wherein consists not only His holy beauty and glory, but His awful and terrible greatness." It is a clear side of this that will fully awaken the consciences of wicked men at the day of judgment without any spiritual light and it is a lesser degree of the same, that awakens the consciences of natural men without spiritual light in this world. The same discoveries are, in some measure, given in the conscience of an awakened sinner in this world, which will be given more fully in the consciences of sinners at the day of judgment. The same kind of sight or apprehension of God, in a lesser degree, makes awakened sinners in this world sensible of the dreadful guilt of sin against so great and terrible a God, and sensible of its amazing power, punishment, and fills them with fearful apprehensions of divine wrath. This will thoroughly convince all wicked men of the infinitely dreadful nature and guilt of sin, and astonish them with apprehensions of wrath, when Christ shall come in the glory of His power and majesty, and every eye shall see Him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail before Him. And in those common illuminations which are sometimes given to natural men, exciting in them some kind of religious desire, love, and joy, the mind is only assisted to a clearer apprehension of the natural good that is in divine things. Thus, sometimes, under common illuminations, men are raised with the ideas of the natural good that is in heaven, as its outward glory, its ease, its honor, and advancement, all persons there being the objects of the high favor of God." So there are many things exhibited in the gospel concerning God and Christ and the way of salvation that have a natural good in them which suits the natural principle of self-love. Thus, in the great goodness of God to sinners and the wonderful dying love of Christ, there is a natural good which all men love as they love themselves, as well as a spiritual and holy beauty which is seen only by the regenerate. Therefore there are many things appertaining to the word of God's grace delivered in the gospel, which may cause natural men, when they hear it, anon with joy to receive it. All that love which natural men have to God and Christ, and to Christian virtues and good men, is not from any side of the amiableness of the holiness or true moral excellency of these things, but only for the sake of the natural good there is in them. All natural men's hatred of sin is as much from principles of nature as a man's hatred of a tiger for his viciousness, or their aversion to a serpent for his poison and hurtfulness, and all their love of Christian virtue is from no higher principle than their love of a man's good nature, which appears amiable to natural men, but no otherwise and silver and gold appear amiable in the eyes of a merchant, or then the blackness of the soil is beautiful in the eyes of the farmer. From what has been said of the nature of spiritual understanding, it appears that spiritual understanding does not consist in any new doctrinal knowledge or in having suggested to the mind any new proposition not before read or heard of, for it is plain that this suggesting of new propositions is a thing entirely diverse from giving the mind a new state or relish of beauty and sweetness. Calvin in his Institute says, quote, The office of the Spirit promised us is not to make new and unheard of revelations, or to coin some new kind of doctrine by which we may be led away from the received doctrine of the gospel but to seal and confirm to us that very doctrine which is by the gospel. And in the same place he speaks of some that in those days maintained a contrary notion, pretending to be immediately led by the Spirit, as persons that were governed by a most haughty self-conceit, and not so properly to be looked upon as only laboring under a mistake, but as driven by a sort of raving madness. It is also evident that spiritual knowledge does not consist in any new doctrinal explanation of any part of the Scripture, for still, this is but doctrinal knowledge or the knowledge of propositions. The doctrinal explaining of any part of Scripture is only giving us to understand what are the propositions contained or taught in that part of Scripture. Hence it appears that the spiritual understanding of the Scripture does not consist in opening to the mind the mystical meaning of the Scripture in its parables, types, and allegories, for this is only a doctrinal explication of the Scripture. He that explains what is meant by the stony ground, and the seed springing up suddenly and quickly withering away, only explains what propositions or doctrines are taught in it. So that he explains... What is typified by Jacob's ladder, and the angels of God descending and descending on it, or what was typified by Joshua's leading Israel through Jordan, only shows what propositions are hid in these passages. And many men can explain these types who have no spiritual knowledge. It is possible that a man might know how to interpret all the types, parables, enigmas, and allegories in the Bible, and not have one beam of spiritual light in his mind, because he may not have the least degree of that spiritual sense of the holy beauty of divine things which has been spoken of, and may see nothing of this kind of glory in anything contained in any of these mysteries or any other part of the Scripture." It is plain by what the Apostle says that a man might understand all such mysteries and have no saving grace, 1 Corinthians 13, 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. They therefore are very foolish who are exalted in an opinion of their own spiritual attainments from notions that come into their minds of the mystical meaning of these and those passages of Scripture as though it was a spiritual understanding of these passages, immediately given them by the Spirit of God. Their affections may be highly raised, but what has been said shows a vanity of such affections. From what has been said, it is also evident that it is not spiritual knowledge for persons to be informed of their duty by having it immediately suggested to their minds that such and such outward actions or deeds are the will of God. If we suppose that it is truly God's manner thus to signify His will to His people by immediate inward suggestions, such suggestions have nothing of the nature of spiritual light. Such kind of knowledge would only be one kind of doctrinal knowledge. A proposition concerning the will of God is as properly a doctrine of religion as a proposition concerning the nature of God or a work of God, And a having either of these kinds of propositions, or any other proposition, declared to a man, either by speech or inward suggestion, differs vastly from a having the holy beauty of divine things manifested to the soul, wherein spiritual knowledge does most essentially consist. Thus, there was no spiritual light in Balaam though he had the will of God immediately suggested to him by the Spirit of God from time to time concerning the way that he should go and what he should do and say. It is manifest, therefore, that a being led and directed in this manner is not that holy and spiritual leading of the Spirit of God which is peculiar to the saints and a distinguishing mark of the sons of God spoken of in Romans 8.14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God They are the sons of God. Galatians 5.18 But if you be led by the Spirit, you are not under the law and if persons have the will of God concerning their actions suggested to them by some text of Scripture suddenly and extraordinarily brought to their minds which text, as the words lay in the Bible before they came to their minds related to the action and behavior of some other person but they suppose as God sent the words to them he intended something further by them and meant some particular action of theirs I say, if persons should have the will of God thus suggested to them with texts of Scripture, it alters not the case. That the suggestion is accompanied with an apt text of Scripture does not give it the nature of spiritual instruction. As, for instance, if a person in New England or on some occasion were at a loss to know whether it was his duty to go into some popish or heathenish land, where he was like to be exposed to many difficulties and dangers, and should pray to God that he would show him the way of his duty... And after earnest prayer should have those words which God spake to Jacob suddenly and extraordinarily brought to his mind, as if they were spoken to him, Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will go with thee, and I also will bring thee up again in which words, though as they lay in the Bible before they came to his mind, they related only to Jacob in his behavior, yet he supposes that God has a further meaning, as they were brought and applied to him, that thus they are to be understood in a new sense, that by Egypt is to be understood the particular country he has in his mind, and that the action intended is only going there, and that the meaning of the promise is that God would bring him back into New England again. There is nothing of the nature of a spiritual or gracious leading of the Spirit in this, for there is nothing of the nature of spiritual understanding in it. Thus, to understand texts of Scripture is not to have a spiritual understanding of them. Spiritually, to understand the Scripture is rightly to understand what is in the Scripture, and what was in it before it was understood. It is to understand rightly what used to be contained in the meaning of it, and not the making of a new meaning. When the mind is enlightened spiritually and rightly to understand the scripture, it is enabled to see that in the scripture which before was not seen by reason of blindness. But if it was by reason of blindness, that is an evidence that the same meaning was in it before. Otherwise, it would have been no blindness not to see it. It is no blindness not to see a meaning which is not there."